Hello, and welcome to the AppThink Podcast. My name is Trevor Newberry. And my name is Dave Mason. We talk to founders, engineers, designers, PMs, and sometimes each other about what it takes to build amazing software products. We hope this podcast helps you turn your big idea into an amazing product. Hello, and welcome back to the AppThink Podcast. So over the last two weeks, there's been an awful lot of talk about what design is in the first place and how it can be a huge advantage for your business, but how are we supposed to do it? Well, today, Kelly Lucas joins me for a third and final installment of our series on design to talk about the tactics used by design professionals to create amazing products. You may be surprised at how easy and accessible some of these tactics we discuss are, but you'll be even more surprised by just how impactful they are for your product and for your business. Now, finally, I want to give a very public and very large thanks to Kelly for her generosity and willingness to spend hours recording these episodes with us. Kelly has children at home, works full time, and was doing all of this during the COVID pandemic and still made time to record with AppNink. Kelly, you are a rock star. As we pointed out in the first episode, Kelly has recently changed jobs and started a company. Because we recorded these videos before any of this was true, we never really got to plug the new things she's up to. So we're going to make sure there are links to her new company, Lunar Lab, and her new employer, Adaptive Financial Consulting, in the show notes. So go check her out and all of the amazing work she's doing. Okay, this was a really long intro, so on with the podcast. Kelly, welcome back. Thank you so much for being a part of this series. Uh, I'm especially excited about today's episode because we're going to get to talk about, as you put it, where the rubber hits the road and what founders can be doing in the world of design, um, getting started with their digital products. So um, yeah, thanks for being here. Oh, Thanks for having me. So let's recap real quick the first two episodes in this series. Uh, We've covered what is design. Uh, We've dispelled some myths, uh, talked a little bit about what people can be looking for in good design. And then we've also talked about why design matters. So, you know, what is the user case for it, but also the business case for design and having really sharp design. So um, anything to add to that? No, I think you set it up perfectly and summarized it nicely. Cool. So I'm going to hit you with something uh, that, to me, I I think I put this in our show notes. This is a really cliched phrase, so I'm going to let you unpack it. Is human-centered design equals the goal. Uh, Human-centered design is something you hear a lot about. You also hear the phrase design thinking all over the place. And it's such an often talked about thing that you kind of lose your grounding as to what it really is and what it actually means for design. So I want to kind of hand that to you now and and let's go ahead and start by getting that out of the way. (laughs) Sounds great. You human centered design and user centered design are topics that, like you said, you hear all over the place. What it fundamentally means is that the people who are using our technology, and that's kind of a giveaway, it's people, right? People use technology. And it's so important that you understand that they are the center of that technology. You can use technology to do all sorts of things. You can automate things, but ultimately that automation benefits someone. At the end of the the process, it's someone who is benefiting from it. And the closer that you are to understanding humans and their motivations and the needs that they have, the the better your products are going to be. Yeah, that's a very good way to put it. 
So where do we start? I think this is where this is going to be a lot of information to unpack in a 30 or so minute episode. So we probably want to be kind of concise with it, but uh, let's start at the very beginning. Um, and for me, that's user interviews. Are we in agreement on that or do we want to go back even further? If you have an idea of a problem that you think needs to be solved, I think that would be the first place you start. It's okay, I've, I've, I have a hypothesis. You know, we talk a lot about the scientific method and while it doesn't directly apply to design methodology, it's, that's where it comes from. It's a lot of, I think that this is happening. I need to validate whether this is happening or not. How big is the problem? And can technology solve that problem? Sometimes it's not technology. Sometimes it's a lot of other things. But specific to this space, a lot of times it is technology. So what is that problem? How do you know it's a problem? If you already have that hypothesis in mind, then the next step that you need to take is talk to people. So this is part of that exploration and validation step of, of all of this design methodology. So you've identified a problem. It's time to, uh, like you put in the show notes, get out of the building. You need to go find where the people are. So when you think about the problem that you're trying to solve, if you say that I think there's an issue with students in schools, where do you need to go? Well, you're not going to go to the barbershop and you're not going to go talk to the CEO of a company. You're going to go sit down at a school, sit down next to a student and start asking questions. Ultimately, that's what a user interview is. It's exactly what it sounds like. You're interviewing a potential user and validating the concept that you have. At this point, you're not quite validating though. You're thinking about the question and wanting to ask lots and lots and lots of questions. At this point, you want to go broad. So in your experience, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it so you can, uh, yeah, I can let you vent a little bit. How many times do you see founders build a product before they've talked to anybody? And then what's the outcome of that process? Every day, every day I see it <laughs> in every company. Uh, this is not a specific to airship problem. This isn't a specific to any specific uh, company. It's all the time, all the time. We have really fun activities that we do a lot around assumptions and what is actually happening. So anytime that a person comes to Airship and says, I want to build this product, part of what we want to, to understand is how much of what they're saying is an assumption versus something that they have gone out and found out and proven and understand. That's, that is a huge part of it. If they haven't done any of that, we are more than happy to help them with that or explain to them how they need to go about figuring that out. So when you talk about user interviews, part of what you need to consider is what types of questions do I need to ask? What is it that I'm trying to understand? And that, that goes back to any kind of user research that you're doing. It's you have to have a hypothesis in mind and you need to test that. So the way that you go about doing that is asking lots and lots of questions. Now there's two ways you can do that. You can ask through open questions or you can ask through closed-ended questions. And closed-ended just means, did you experience this problem? Yes or no? Well, that's not going to give you a ton of information. What you really want to do is ask lots of open-ended questions. You want people, you want to get people talking. You want to get people explaining the things that they're doing. But anytime that you're doing any kind of research, you need to have a goal in mind. So when you go to start asking those questions, what is it you're trying to understand? It could be, I want to discover more about students. I want to explore the way that students work. I want to 
identify a need that they have. So there's all kinds of ways that you need to approach it. But ultimately, you, you need to approach it through a specific discovery lens, a, a way to think about the problem. Yeah, I love that. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. The difference between open and closed questions is a surprisingly difficult uh, skill to learn. It is a skill. Asking good questions takes some practice. And I, I remember the first time that I was in a usability testing uh, environment and asking questions and I got I recorded the whole thing and I got done and I showed it to a buddy of mine that works in product um, for a local startup well, they're not a startup anymore. They're actually pretty mature. But um, I, asked, I, I sent this over to him and he said, you know, this was good, but your questions were a little leading. You know, you, you pointed them in the direction that you kind of wanted them to go. And, and there were way too many yes, no's in, involved. Right. Um, and so I would not say that I'm, I'm, I'm an expert at that, but that illustrates to me the point that you have to practice this. And so as a founder, I would say, you know, Look into how to write good questions. Um, look into how to write open-ended questions and then to ask good follow-up questions to those open-ended questions and then go out and start doing it because it is difficult to do. It's it's absolutely a skill. It, it really is. It's Asking questions, I think, is really easy. Asking good questions, like you said, is a skill. Um, that's why I say that I think it's important to understand what skill set people bring to the table. So when I talk about UX, part of what I always joke about is we're professional question askers. And some of the things that you want to think about is when you're sitting next to someone, you need to approach that in a mentor-mentee way. So if I were to, I used to work in um, financial technology software and I knew nothing about the stuff that I was building, absolutely nothing. So anytime I would sit down with someone who works on stock trades, I would sit next to them and I would say, okay, treat me like a kindergartner and I need you to dumb down every single thing you're doing and I'm going to ask you repeatedly what you're doing. I need you to repeat that to me as many times as it takes for me to understand. And that's okay. I think where you run into problems is where you make assumptions about the things that people are doing. And instead of asking, you just think, well, I know what that meant. I'll, you know, I'll look at that later. I'll figure that out later. So you really want to approach it like I'm a kindergartner, you know, dumb it down for me, explain it, re-explain it, and then follow up with lots of questions. So I might sit down with someone and say, I want you to show me what you do all day. And I'm going to get my pen and paper out and hopefully someone else is there helping record, take pictures, you know, just help with that process. But I'm just going to start writing. Um, what are you doing? Okay, why did you do that? What are you doing next? Why did you need to do that next? What was that? What did you click on? Why did you go run to the printer? So it's, it, it is very much like a three-year-old who is in, experiencing a new environment for the first time. And I think we've probably all experienced this if you've been around a kid, but they have lots of questions and they're going to ask them over and over and over again. And to me, that's one of the best ways to learn. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, all right. So you have, and I'm going to return. I actually want to go backwards a little bit. Is that okay? Because I want to hit the, uh, you mentioned one thing that I'm a little embarrassed that I left out is the hypothesis. And that's a big one for me in, in the work that I do with my clients is, you know, I just had a meeting the other day, a discovery meeting, and <clears throat> this person sat down and said, I've got an idea and it could do this and it could do this and it could do this and it could do this. And it like before we were done with this, this meeting, I had written down probably eight different discrete applications of the core idea, right? And so what I had to tell them was, you know, what we need to do is focus on the most viable business case for this concept, right? And the way that we're going to do that, the way that we're going to find that out isn't by guessing. The way that we're going to find that out is saying, 
we think that person X experiences Y pain and that our solution would solve that pain for them or that they would be interested in it. And the point of illustrating that is that a hypothesis is really a testable statement, right? And you use interviews, you use market research as well, but you use interviews to uh, to validate or disprove that testable statement. So that person doesn't have that pain. Okay, cool. That's fine. You turn around and you build another hypothesis. Um, or it, they, it, they do have that pain point, but they don't seem like they'd be very interested in this kind of solution, right? So using their mobile device to do X kind of intimidates them. So maybe we need to look at something else. But I, I, I did want to make sure that we touched on that. Hypothesis is really a it's a statement that you can test. It's not a statement of belief. It's not a statement of um, fact. It's just a statement that you can take and write down, and then you can ask questions and do research around it and either prove it or disprove it and then continue to iterate on it as you're developing your concept. Does that track with your experience? Yeah, definitely. I think when you're when you're talking about uh, the exact scenario that you just illustrated, you have five different concepts the founder wants to approach all of them and thinks the product needs to include everything. Well, what I would want to do is I would take all of those, those ideas, those hypotheses, hypotheses and say out of a hundred people, how many of that group are experiencing problem number one, problem number two, problem number three. And what you might find is one out of a hundred people experiences problem number one but 90 out of 100 experience problem number five. Well, that kind of information is what's gonna help you prioritize where you need to start your prototyping, where you need to start with your MVP. These other features might very well be very valuable to people, but whether they're the most valuable, that's, that's the type of thing that assumptions are not going to help you with. You have to go talk to people, you have to get out of the building. Yep, I love that. Um, so I'm gonna move on. We've, we've built a hypothesis, we have found people to interview, to ask questions to, right? So start to validate or disprove that hypothesis and iterating on that as we go. So now, you know, we build a product, right? No, we don't build a product. No, Not no, at this stage. No, it's a, uh, it would still be a waste of uh, energy to be building a product. You know, what we move into next is uh, faking it essentially. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about prototyping, uh, and prototyping is often misunderstood. It's a little bit complicated. Uh, the concept isn't complicated, but it, I find that it gets mixed up with the idea of an MVP a lot. So a lot of people talk about MVPs as prototypes. I think there's a, there's an argument to be made there, but I typically treat them as separate, right? For me, and, and a prototype is something that doesn't really function it, or maybe it f partially functions, yeah. right? An MVP is actually the delivery of value. It's actually, you are actually delivering something that works. You may be delivering it manually. You may be kind of concierge MVPing your, your concept, but uh, it's actually de delivering value. So um, prototyping, I, I use the phrase rapid prototyping a lot, but I want to let you kind of weigh in on like, what is a prototype? As a designer, um, when you talk about prototyping with your clients, what are you, what are we talking about? Yeah. And even when you ask that question, Trevor, there's, there's different flavors to it, right? So we have some clients who come to us and say, we've got this idea. We're not sure it's similar to the circumstance we just illustrated a minute ago. We have five different things that we're looking to build. We're not sure which one we need to build. We think based on the feedback we've gotten, one out of the five is the viable one. Now we need to test that, right? So the way we would go about testing that is we would 
come up with a prototype. So in this case, the prototype might be wireframes. They might look really stupid. They might look really simple and basic, and that's fine. They may not even be clickable. They might be a drawing on a page. Sometimes that is all you need to test and validate an idea. I, I highly recommend the, the sketch approach where it's appropriate. Where I think it, it does get a little bit ambiguous is what are the goals that you're trying to achieve when you're prototyping? If you're... If the thing that you're trying to test is I have a new brand and I might want a branded app that looks this way or a branded app that looks this way, you might want high fidelity designs. You might want it to look just like a project, a product. You might want it to look like it's been coded. You might want to see animations. You might want to see page transitions. And all of that can be done really quickly through design software. That is the, the really nice thing about prototyping early is that it's really cheap to do and it's really easy to do. And you don't need to prototype through live code. I have worked in, <laughs> in companies where they also thought that prototyping was the live code. Well, if you spend four or five, six months building it, it's not a prototype. It doesn't mean that you can quickly change directions if you are now building the wrong thing and you realize it. We talked about in that episode too. The sooner that you know, the better. So that's what prototypes do. They help you get feedback from people really quickly, really early. And the nice thing is that if you learn in the morning that this one button isn't named the right thing and it needs to change to another page, you can do that before your second interview. <laughs> if you've got a day lined up, you can keep making changes until you get to interview number five and you discover now you're at the right thing. All of that feedback, all of those cycles have taken place now within a day instead of over a month or three months or six months. Yeah, I love that. And and I think that I was I was ready and waiting for you to make that point that you can test a, a whole host of things with prototyping. That's kind of the fun part and also the, uh, maybe a little bit of the overwhelming part, right? So you can, uh, you can test your branding, you can test a new color palette, you can test the placement of buttons. Uh, for a founder, for a first-time founder, I would say that you're probably testing just general interaction a lot of times. So you're, you're mocking it up in Figma or something like that and saying, hey, you know, sit down, tell me what you think you need to do next, or tell me, you know, what does this thing do? Or you're not even saying that you're just putting it in front of them and saying, do a thing. Right. Um, and then watching how they interact with the basic product, but you can, you can shatter it into a number of different small tests. And I think that's really the point of the conversation around prototypes is that you're, you're testing human interaction with certain things you're not actually building the thing. You're not actually delivering a functioning product. You're testing elements of that to see if you're on the right track. Yeah, you're, you you put it really well. You are testing how people respond to a computer, right? So like you said, you can test you can test the labels. Do people know what to do? Are the buttons really clear? You can test one version versus another one. You could send 50 people version number one and you could send 50 people version number two and see the speed that they get through a specific task. There's lots of stuff that you can do to, to test different hypotheses, like you said, but ultimately you have to have the goal in mind when you create the, the, the prototype. You wouldn't necessarily want to spend a ton of time creating a high fidelity design of something and beautiful animations if all you're testing is a, a label on a button. Well, you could have done that on paper. You, you could have spent the time drawing it out and just saying which one is more clear. Uh, so yeah, like you said, there's, there are different uh, goals in mind that you have to think through, but ultimately it's really achievable. It's an easy, simple, cheap way to get feedback early and often. Yeah. So for a founder, where do they start with prototyping? They've had a bunch of interviews, uh, you know, where I, maybe this is 
an unfair question, but where do most people need to start with prototyping? Oh, that's a good question. Do you mean tools or? No, not tools. Just what do they need to do? They can use a number of tools. They can put it on a whiteboard. They can sketch it on a piece of paper. If they're familiar with Figma, they can do something like that. But where do they, do they need to be testing more often their branding or do they need to be testing uh, actual interaction with a, with, with a concept? I, I like to think of it this way. You're never going to know everything and you're never going to be able to test everything and know it before you build it. But what I like to, the, the lens that I like to look through is what is the thing that I know the least about and the thing that I feel least confident about and focus on that, make that the goal. I want to evaluate whether my labels are clear. I want to analyze whether this flow is efficient for this particular persona. What, what you really have to start with the goal before you decide where you need to go next. Uh, so I think taking some time to crystallize what it is you really need to find out is, is definitely the starting point. And then depending on what that is, like you said, if it's branding, then you know that wireframes aren't going to do that. You do need to, to create a, a prettier design if that's what you're trying to test. So I think coming up with the, the thing that you're trying to test is, is exactly where to start. Yeah. So that's uh, risky assumption testing. Mm -hmm. That's something that we talk about a lot with our clients is what are the riskiest assumptions that we're making? And let's, uh, let's start with those. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. So moving on, we've prototyped. Um, now it's probably time to start talking about an MVP, right? I think so. I think yeah. so. Okay. So what is an MVP? It is your minimum viable product. <laughs> that is the definition of it. And it's a silly term, but it is the, what is the least amount that we can do to provide value to someone or to solve a problem? How many times do you see people deliver uh, MCPs, minimum crappy products? Oh, gosh. And call it an MVP? All the time. All the time. <laughs> I think that MVPs can come in all shapes and flavors, but ultimately it doesn't mean that it has to be crappy. It means that you are delivering value and that it can be pretty. It can also be very functional. It doesn't have to feel cheap. It doesn't have to feel clunky. It just needs to deliver that value in a really seamless way. Yeah, I think it. I think it is done a disservice. The concept of the MVP is done a disservice by the word minimum preceding viable. Right? Mm -hmm. um, minimum viable products need to be delivering at a really high level of quality. You're just building the smallest chunk of your concept that can actually deliver a discrete unit of value. Right? Yeah. And when I say discrete unit of value. Someone can go from point A to point B entirely using that MVP, right? And maybe this is where we talk about features. So maybe you've got a backlog of, of 60 different features, but the first five combined actually create a valuable something for your customer or for your, for your target audience. So you just build those five and you put it out there and you run essentially a live test with that as well. Right. So you're, you're watching metrics, you're watching how people, you know, download your app or how, you know, how many, how many, how long people are staying on the website or certain pages, you're still doing testing much in the same way that you would with a prototype, but you have a live product that should be delivering value at a high level of quality. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I, it immediately, while you were talking, it made me think of Netflix. If you remember, if you're old enough to remember when Netflix first started, you know, all they did was mail you DVDs. There was nothing fundamentally wild about what they were doing, except that instead of shipping you DVDs you'd paid for and bought, they were shipping you rented DVDs. And I remember 
that was such a disruptor to, you know, all of the movie galleries and the blockbusters of the world. And there was nothing particularly elegant about that solution. It wasn't this, this wild technology that they have now that delivers millions and millions of hours of content to everyone's TVs anywhere that they are. That was not probably nowhere in their backlog at the very beginning. It was, well, how can we, how can we make this service a little bit more seamless for people to use and look what happened but to your point trevor if they had waited until their their minimum viable product was i want to deliver millions of hours of content to everyone's tvs through the internet it would have required waiting on you know broadband internet for everybody the internet yeah (laughs) i mean smart tvs it would have required all of those things and it didn't happen then it wasn't available then so what they did was they didn't wait on the perfect solution they waited for the right time to just send people dvds to their home yeah I think that's a that's a perfect way to put that. Um, so, you know, one of the things I have written down here, I just want to clarify, you know, just for the sake of making sure that we've covered this is, you know, MVPs, I, I want to cover the difference between prototypes and MVPs. Just real quick. Yeah. I'm probably going to cut this out because I'm fumbling this conversation. Okay. Um, <laughs> MVPs, I don't have to do this again. We've already done it. Um, all right, so... I'm going to cut a lot of this out. See, it doesn't bother me. I just keep going. Um, okay, so next on the list, and I, I alluded to this in the conversation just a second ago about how you're almost, not almost, you are actually running a test with an MVP. You know, what What about this feedback cycle, right? So we enter into a cyclic nature of gathering information, processing information, and then acting on it, uh, even once we've put a product into the field. So I wanted to get, get your take on the feedback cycle here. Yeah, it's it's to me, it's the most important part that the fundamental beginning stages are really important. But this is such an educational moment, I think, for anyone who's building a product. The What's led to launching your MVP and launching your product, there was a lot of thought that went into that. Don't stop there. Do not stop with, well, I had a hypothesis. I tested it. I seem to be right. All right, I'm done. Well, if Netflix had have done that, imagine where they'd be today, right? So what you need to do is you need to think about how people are using this. And I'm going to go back to what we said earlier. It's not what I think people are doing with this. It is sitting down with people, observing what they're doing. Where are they they interacting with your software? Where could they be interacting with your software? What other problems do they have that you're not currently solving? And really understanding what their day-to-day looks like because there's all kinds of ways that you can continue to improve the product. Through all of this exposure to people, that is where your backlog comes from. Uh, your backlog should not come from, you know, I shower every morning and I think of 10 new ideas. Well, nine out of 10 of those are probably gonna fail. But what is the one, what is the one that deserves to be on the backlog next? What is the one that people are asking for? And if you do this right, the ideas will come to you. They will walk straight in through your door through a Zoom call because you've sat there and watched somebody work with the product. And I and Trevor, you know this because we've we've worked on projects together, but just listening to people and observing people is where ninety-nine percent of your growth is gonna come from. It can come through sitting with people, it can also come through analytics. And this is such an interesting area I think to tie into the feedback cycle because I I think that analytics are incredibly important. You have Google Analytics, you have all kinds of like Firebase and other ones that you can integrate into a technical product. But don't depend on that to do your work for you though. That's there are so many 
reasons why not to do that. But if you extract data away from humans, then you lose all of that context. And then you can start building a product in the wrong direction if you are just looking at data without putting the right context into it. Quantitative and qualitative have to inform each other, yes. right? Mm -hmm. If you see a trend in your analytics, whether that's Google Analytics or Firebase or whatever, and you don't ask someone or you don't ask several people, why is that happening? You don't have enough information at that stage, right? You don't have enough information to make an actionable decision right. at that stage. Yeah. Yeah, because the, the data, I was going to say, the, the data is exactly where that hypothesis is going to come from. So... I saw it actually in a product just this week that I was looking at, and they had the thought to put in one particular metric that they were measuring time spent on a page. And I love this one. This is one of my favorite ones to I'm like, oh, you think that's important. Why do you think it's important? Tell me about it. What did you what did that inform you of? And what was happening with that particular product was, oh, well, we know that if they're spending time on this page that they didn't understand what was on the page. It's like, well, okay, let me offer some alternate theories. The page froze. They were interrupted with a phone call. The, the experience on the page could have been a happy one. It could have been a sad one. It could have been a frustrated one because maybe the, the page loaded, but they couldn't get back to where they came from. Maybe they are still scanning the page because they thought that the information they were looking for was going to be on here. And now they're frustrated because they've read all of this content that had nothing to do with it. So... There are all kinds of reasons that people might stay on a page and the data would not tell that story at all. You would just say, oh, people really love this page because they keep coming here and spending all this time. And you just assume that it's a happy experience and it's not or vice yep. versa. No, no, no. I think that's a fantastic example. And one thing I want to point out to um, at this point, we've walked through pretty much all of the things that you need to be thinking about as a founder. And what we've been recording for 29 minutes. We've no way of covered the, uh, the details required to get that done, but it, hopefully that'll give someone a place to start thinking about these things. Right. But one thing, you know, these three episodes we've been talking about design. And one thing that we haven't talked about once today is how pretty something looks. We haven't talked about, um, the layout on a page. We haven't, we've been talking about, and this goes back to the top of it. You know, human centered design is building things for people right? And how design helps us build things for people that they can use and in a happy way, right? Not in a sad way that people are, are excited about using, that they get value out of using, that makes sense to them to use, that reflects the use cases that we intend for that to be, you know, reflected. Um, and I think another really important thing to, to point out here is that this process never really stops. I mean, you just, you just pointed that out, but I, I really, I want to drive that home you've got an MVP in the field. Great. You've got your first product out there. You have to keep paying attention. And this process essentially starts over again. You build a new hypothesis, right? And you start testing it. And that is how you build your backlog. That's how you decide which features are worth building and which features are not worth building. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a great metaphor about, uh, you know, creating a product is a lot like creating a garden. You can't just plant it and say, all right, good luck. Cause it takes pruning. At some point you're going to discover that one of these features that you thought was a really good idea and maybe based on the three people that you talked to all agreed it's a great idea they need it yes we're going to build it at some point at some point you look at the data and it says no one's used this page in four years okay now what what did we do wrong what could we have done better what do we need to change do we need to just get rid of it so yeah it, it is a continuous cycle and if you if you neglect that 
the garden dies. That's, that is what happens to products eventually if you don't give them the attention that they need and the thoughtfulness that they need and the intentionality that they need. It's, it is an ongoing investment in, in your future. Yeah. 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 I, I could not agree with that more. Um, you know, one of the things that I was listening to, I was listening to an audiobook <clears throat> recently, um, this is maybe a good wrapping up point is, is to say that, you know, in today's environment, you used to be able to, you know, gosh, what in the, the early 20th century, mid century, you would be able to build a product, right? And you might be one of only two or three people in, in your, in your industry, right? You build a, a great sneaker. I don't know why I always return to sneakers, but build a great sneaker. You're off to the races. You got a couple of competitors, but really you're, you're in pretty good shape today. You have to continue to deliver value over and over and over again. Building a company around a product, really, it, a company is product, right? There's so many things about it, but marketing, sales, everything is in service of building something that someone actually wants to use. And in today's environment, you're constantly being hit from all sides. People that want to take a chunk of that market share, that want to knock you off the map, so you have to be engaging in this design process continually over and over and over again. Um, so I love that you pointed out that you don't get to stop. Your garden will die. Um, you know, I'll be even more blunt. Your company will die. If you've built a product and it's successful and you stop doing this, your, your, your product will die and then your company will die. So um, on that cheery note, we'll <laughs> maybe uh, I think this might be a good place to leave it just in, 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 in that regard. But is there anything you want to add to this conversation? Yeah, I, I wanted to add to your shoe, your shoe story. So <laughs> shoes have been around as long as humans have been around. And I don't know if you've heard this news, but Zappos started uh, mailing people different size shoes. Such a novel idea. Or single shoes, different shoes in different sizes, because that was a need from actual humans who do not have feet the same two sizes. Or two people who only have one leg. So when we reflect on inclusive design, which we touched on in the last episode, just talking to actual humans and recognizing that that's a need from people. It, this is not coming from data. Your data is going to give you an average human with an average shoe size, and it's going to tell you sell more size 10 shoes. Talking to actual people opened up market share for Zappos that they would not have understood through data, through assumptions, through anything else, just talking to actual people. So I, I can't agree more. It's, it's such an important aspect, and it's the fundamental thing that's going to keep your company in business. Yeah. Well, Kelly, this has been just a ton of fun. I always love talking to you. So this was a real treat for me, all three episodes. Um, thank you so much for joining us and for, for giving your time and your wisdom and your insight here. I, I really think that people are going to get a lot from it. Well, Trevor, thanks for having me. I, I love any time that I get to talk about design and especially not about just how pretty it needs to be. You get to get into the weeds about it. So thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to AppThink. If you want to learn more about how you can turn your big idea into an amazing product, head on over to appthink.io. That's A-P-P-T-H-I-N-K dot I-O to check out our free resources. And if you're ready to get started building your product, sign up for one of our courses to help you save time and money building an amazing, successful product.